Hello, Southview. Welcome to this weekend's online liturgy. My name is John. I'm the junior high youth pastor here at Southview. And I'm so glad you're able to join us this weekend as we explore life's biggest questions. If you've ever asked the question, who am I? Or if you've ever struggled with, the, with your identity and understanding who you are, then today we're going to begin to reveal an unwavering confidence of who we are and who we're meant to be, which can be found in one place. When we're searching for identity, that is to know who we are, we tend to search for and fulfill our search in things that are small, limiting, that are created in our world, leaving us with an incomplete knowledge of who God has created us to be and a life of uncertainty, endless pursuits, and attempt to fulfill that incomplete knowledge. However, God has created us with a set identity and purpose in mind. And scripture shows us that the pursuit to know God, we will know confidently who we are and what we're meant to do. This idea of identity is, is uh, defined by psychologists and sociologists as a complex and hard to define idea and very difficult to explain. They would suggest that there are many different elements that make up a person's identity. And ultimately, no one's identity is a result of their own doing, but it is instead from complex structures in the world around them and in their biology. Being that no one person's experience is the same, these elements which suggest that defining idea in, of a, the idea of identity in one broad swoop is limiting, ignorant, and wrong, is stating that no one could fit into one small box. So how can I speak on identity? How am I, a theology undergrad, going to explain the complexities of identity and apparently box everyone into the idea that we all have access to the unwavering confidence of who we are and who we're meant to be, found only in one simple place. Ultimately, I'm not going to downplay or suggest I fully ex understand and, ex and understand, um, everyone's experiences and complexities here today. Scripturally speaking, that too would be wrong because in Scripture it says that we are uniquely and wonderfully made. However, we need to address the core of the identity question, and that is, who are we? Not what makes up who we are, and, and not to dismiss the experiences that have made who we are, our unique complex self, but at the core of who we are and who we are created to be, we all share the same image and purpose. We all ask the question, who am I? And psychologists suggest that this is a lifelong pursuit and everyone asks it either consciously or subconsciously. They also say that we find identity in essentially everything. Nationality, race, religion, sports team's favorite color, who we are, what we do, our general feelings towards things, our ambitions, and so on. As psychologists have dissected the human experience to point to utter complexity, and rightfully so, we are uniquely and wonderfully made. 
But this brings up the main tension that all of us experience, which is often an unfulfilled and empty pursuit to answer, who am I? If in fact we define ourselves by our every experience and, 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 and when the experiences change, well then we're left redefining who we are. If we define ourselves by I am what I feel, meaning once we get in touch with our deepest suppressed feelings and define who we are by what feels right, that that's when we'll, we'll know who we are. Then, those fe- when, when, when those feelings change, we're left redefining who we are. And sure, our feelings have merit. But we read in Jeremiah 9, 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who we are must be found in something far more constant. If we define ourselves by I am what I possess and achieve, once we've attained those things, or if we lose those things, we're left to redefine who we are once again. And what we possess and achieve has no guarantee. We read in 1 John 1, 2-7, the world and its desires are passing away. We cannot define who we are by what will eventually leave us. And if we define ourselves by I am who I say I am, and pursue to an end all the things that we believe will fulfill that, we lose out on living a life of contentment and instead live a life of constant pursuit to define ourselves, which may or may not ever happen. And ultimately, this way of thinking will cause us to, to question ourselves and, 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 and we will ultimately take the authority of our creation into our own hands, which scripture reveals is not ours to take because we had no part in our creation. Our experiences do make up who we are. But if we define ourselves by our experiences, what we feel, what we possess, what we achieve, what I, what I say I am, we will never have a solid knowledge and understanding of the lifelong question, who am I? We will never know our authentic self, which one survey says that seniors at the end of, of their life regret having not lived an authentic life. Could you imagine living with confidence, contentment, peace, and joy in who you are, no matter the experience, no matter the crisis, or no matter where you are in life? Could you imagine what it means for your life and for your pursuits? When we're searching for identity, when we're searching for the answer, to answer the question, who am I? The search is over when we look to God and we begin to understand ourselves by who he is and who he says we are. In our series, When We're Searching For, we've been looking through the Psalms to find answers to some of life's biggest questions. 
The Psalms are songs of praise and worship and, and help answer life's biggest questions because we're reading experiences and insights from God's people and the experiences they've had about him in light of their biggest life questions. And it comes as no surprise that this question of who I am is also found in the Psalms. One place to begin answering the question is in Psalm chapter 8. In this nine-verse chapter, we see the profound interaction the psalmist has, where he is in awe of God, which makes him question, but who am I? What is so profound is that the psalmist is in awe of God and left questioning, but who am I? And is then met with the confidence of who he is by knowing who God is and who God says we are. I'm going to be reading all nine verses because psalms are like the song, are like a song. And you don't turn on a song and play a 30-second chunk in the middle and say you've appreciated it. And so I'm not going to do that with this psalm here today. To appreciate the entire depth behind the psalmist's question, but who am I? We need to read this chapter as a full song. And so I'm going to read Psalm chapter 8. And as we hear it, remember, this is the word of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all beasts of the field and birds of the heavens and fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I first read this passage, I wasn't, it wasn't apparent to me that I was going to be led to, to, to the lifelong question of who am I? All I read was a beautiful poem by the psalmist about his own experience. But as I studied this passage, I began to see not only was confidence in identity a reality for the psalmist, but is a reality available to everyone. Although, like I said earlier, identity is such a complex idea. How is it that we can fit everyone into one idea that we all have access to and can be found in the same place? Well, there are three things that stick out in this passage that the psalmist experienced and that helps us answer universally the question, who am I? The three ideas I would suggest are having a God-sized perspective, an understanding of our appointed identity, and the pursuit of identity begins and ends with God. 
And looking at how Psalm 8 flows, we need to start by looking at the idea of having a God-sized perspective. Perspective is key in understanding what something is. If we are the perspective of our own world, we can see ourselves as magnificent because we have no real frame of reference beyond anything beyond ourselves, such as other people, their accomplishments, our actual impact in the world. We have no idea who we are in the world when our, when our perspective is self-focused. In Psalm 8, we see in verses 1 to 4, the psalmist develops a God-sized perspective, which leads him to know his position in creation. He begins by saying, How majestic is your name in all the earth? Grammatically, this is, this, it sounds as if this is a, uh, the psalmist is asking a question. However, this verse is not. I wonder how majestic is God in all the earth? Instead, it's more of a rhetorical question where the psalmist is placing God's name in all the earth. Meaning, any place God's name is, or any place that God's name dwells, God is found there. The Hebrew word for majesty here is a deer. And it expresses greatness, or power, or, or that of a mighty ship. And when we reference, uh, the reference to God in this psalm is a reference to his known glory, which is, sets the stage for this entire psalm. The psalmist begins with admiration and awe of who, the, of who God is and his visible glory in all the earth, which is often enough <laughs> For me, when I stand in the mountains and I look up at the beauty, I, I'm in awe of God. But the psalmist goes beyond the earth and says, even more so, you have set your glory above the heavens. It's as if the psalmist is becoming more and more in awe of God the more he contemplates God's glory. But then it takes a weird turn in verse 2. The psalmist is in awe of God and, and makes the shift and says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength or praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This has to be the most confusing part when exploring this passage. What does this have to do with God's glory? This verse alone can take a lot to unpack. But in light of God's glory, the psalmist is saying, God's foes, really not our foes here on earth, but cosmic-sized foes of God are silenced and eliminated by weak, dependent babies. Which is to say, God, your glory stretches beyond the heavens and your power is unmatchable. You don't even need armies or strong men. You can destroy your enemies with helpless babies. And if the psalmist has any understanding of Israel's history, he would know God has demonstrated his power by using the small to defeat the strong. Like David, a small boy who defeated Goliath, a giant man. 
or Gideon, who defeated an army against the the Midianites despite having only 300 men. Really, the psalmist is even more in awe and admiration of God. Affirming God's power is a demonstration of his glory and size. The psalmist's perspective is beginning to be altered here. Where he begins to have a God-sized perspective. He finishes by looking at the beauty of the night sky, the moon and the stars and their vastness. And says, but it was but a minor work of God who spun it off by his fingertips. It was at this point the psalmist, being overwhelmed by the glory of God and, and his size, sees himself in a new perspective. In verse 4, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The two Hebrew words here to reference humanity really demonstrates the psalmist's new perspective. He uses enos for man and Ben Adam, meaning son of man. And even though they had many different terms for, for man and humanity, some which meant the first and others which meant uh, strength or could demonstrate strength, these two words together in this context demonstrate the weakness and frailty of man. The psalmist is saying, God, you are so big and powerful and we are so small and t- frail. The psalmist is demonstrating a God-sized perspective. And in light of that perspective, he sees truly how small and insignificant he is. His psalm is is supposedly written by King David, which isn't entirely clear. But if it is, this is a man who by Israel's sights is a mighty, powerful, rich man. And if this is King David... In light of God's glory, David sees himself as weak and insignificant. Which is such a great example of God-sized perspective. Seeking a God-sized perspective isn't much of a challenge to us. God makes himself abundantly visible in his creation. And Paul even says in Romans 1, 19-20, that knowing God is clear... Because God has shown his invisible attributes, such as his eternal uh, eternal power and divine nature in creation. And to know him, or sorry, to not know him isn't possible. God reveals his glory in his creation. His majesty is in all the earth, above the heavens, and in our experiences. Of his work in our lives, we can experience him. The only thing we can do is to stop and recognize his majesty in creation. The psalmist shifted his focus to see God. And he was met with an overwhelming new perspective. God reveals his glory. And when we take time to recognize it, we are met with his majesty. And our perspective begins to change. This new perspective should lead us, as it led the psalmist, to see ourselves among God's creation and begin to develop an understanding of who we are. And then with this God-sized perspective and a deeper knowledge of who God says we are, 
we are met with an unwavering confidence of our appointed identity. Even though the psalmist recognizes his insignificance in light of God's glory, he also says in verse 4, What is Enos, mortal man, that you are mindful of him? And Ben-Adam, man in general, that you care for him. The psalmist is saying, in all of your glory, why do you have special interest in, for us? He might even be reflecting on the creation story in Genesis 1, where the beasts of the earth and man are created on the same day, making them seemingly on par in creation. But the psalmist is asking, out of all your creation, why do you have special interest in tiny us? And here is where an unwavering confidence in who we are comes in. The psalmist writes, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over your works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. Verse 5 and 6 are in response to his question, Why do you have interest in us? And it doesn't really answer the question, why? Instead, it says, yet. As in, I don't know why you have special interest in us, but you do. You give us a special place just lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned us with honor and glory, and you give us dominion over your works. And the psalmist is able to say this because he's referencing who God has created mankind to be. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, where God says, Let us make mankind in our image and likeness, to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and wild animals, and over all creation that moves along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image, and in his image he created them. This is where the psalmist finds his unwavering confidence in his identity. He's saying, God, you are so big. We are so weak and insignificant, indistinguishable from all other creation. Yet you give us a place of honor and glory and dominion when you made us in your image. His God-sized perspective led him to see who he really is, as small, weak, and insignificant. But because of God's special interest in us, he's led to see that his insignificance is, 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 is significant because he's made in the image and likeness of God and appointed special honor to share dominion over God's creation. God appoints this position to man. And in awe and wonder of God, the psalmist receives the appointed identity to the extent that no other one of his accomplishments matter. When we have a God-sized perspective, we are humbled by our admiration of who God is. And we can't help but feel insignificant. This insignificance can sometimes fester and leave us feeling hopeless, alone, and purposeless. But like the psalmist, we need to receive our appointed identity that we are distinguished with glory and honor in our very being, and we are given an undeserved position and dominion over the creation. 
And like the psalmist asks, but doesn't get an answer to, why we deserve this is not the point. That we are given this position is. And it should cause us to return praise back to God. We are made low in light of who God is, but he raises us up to glory. However, if we take inventory of our lives and examine whether or not this is this is true, and we actually believe this, or we actually practice this, we might tend to disagree with the psalm. Then indeed we're insignificant, but we are most certainly not these beautiful creations that God has made us to be. Which is a valid point. I mean, I look at myself and I wonder, how am I made in the image and likeness of God? And even though I'm made in the image and likeness, I still search and pursue my identity in things that are not from God. Although Hebrews chapter 2 speaks into this idea of identity, where where, where Paul quotes Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or son of man that you cared for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. He goes on to say, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, which means we do not see everything, including our identity, comes from our subjection to God. But we're not left wondering. Verse 9 adds, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, which in this case is Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All of what Paul is saying in regards to our identity is that if we look to ourselves, if we define ourselves by what we feel, achieve, possess, or who we say we are, we will never see ourselves as crowned with glory and honor. But if we look to Jesus, who being made lower than the heavenly beings, being fully human, as as the perfect human example of being made in the image and likeness of God, only then can we begin to understand who we are truly made to be. And that's exactly what what Psalm 8 is telling us. Verse 1 starts with adoration of God, which begins the psalmist's understanding of who he really is. And by verse 9, when he has this God-sized perspective, he understands his appointed identity and ends with the same words he began with. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Except this time, it is implied that not only is he in awe of God's glory, he is now giving praise and thanksgiving to God's glory, which is beyond the heavens, and is beautifully constructed into us. The pursuit of identity begins and ends with God. If at any point along the way we look to ourselves, we will not see what we're made to be and who we're made to, 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 to look like. We will miss out on understanding ourselves being crowned with glory and honor. And we'll never satisfy the question, who am I? Could you imagine 
if we actually understood ourselves as truly being made in God's image and being crowned with glory and honor. Instead of being influenced by the experiences around us, we would live with a constant joy and peace in who we are. We wouldn't question what our purpose is. We wouldn't need to redefine ourselves. We wouldn't be dissatisfied because all people who, because, because we are made with an image and purpose in mind. And we would confidently know that. This sort of understanding would change how we live in the world. No longer small and significant people trying to make our mark in an expansive universe, but a people who already have a divinely given significance. When we're searching for identity, it doesn't come from anywhere in us or around us. It comes when we pursue God, when we have a God-sized perspective, believe in our appointed identity, and end in pursuing God. And that's how the psalm encourages us today. If you're searching for identity, if you live discontent in who you are, or if searching for identity has left you feeling empty, pursue God and discover who you were made to be. You can find him in creation. You can find him in his word. And you can find him in, in your experiences. Searching for identity means searching for God. Pursue him. Find him. And have an unwavering knowledge of who you are. If you're searching, I want to ask, and I want us to think about, how are you going to search for God and his glory? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your name is endlessly majestic in all the earth and in the heavens. And your glory is equally embedded in us. For those who are seeking to know who they are or are feeling a sense of emptiness in life's pursuits, I pray that you, being mindful of them, pursue them and reveal yourself to them. May they see in your, you in your glory of who you are. May they know who we are and who you say we are. May we all being, may we all begin and end with pursuing you when we look for who we are. And may we find you in our subjection to Christ. We pray all these things to you because of the death of your son on the cross and by the guidance of the spirit we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us here this week. And may our majestic Lord reveal himself to you and with all his glory this week. Go with the peace and awestruck wonder of who Christ is this week. God bless.